Welcome to the Morning Dove Podcast. I'm so glad that you are here. In this space, I hope to normalize the grief journey while amplifying stories of loss. I believe that listening to each other's stories brings validation, empathy, and an increased understanding of foreign perspectives. By providing a window into the loss community, it is my hope that you will feel seen, heard, and deeply loved. Now on to the episode. Hello friends, and welcome to another episode of The Morning Dove. Today's episode is actually going to be the last episode of season one of The Morning Dove podcast, and I am very excited to share my conversation with Tracy Gilmore Nemoy, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist with a practice in San Diego. Last year, unfortunately, Tracy's daughter Addison was stillborn, and through her experience with stillbirth and losing her daughter, Tracy decided to tailor her practice to include perinatal care, and she has done an incredible job of creating an online community through Instagram that serves those who have experienced miscarriage, stillbirth, and termination for medical reasons. Tracy is a grief expert. Not only has she had the formal training, but she has the experiential knowledge of what it is like to walk through a grief journey and all of the aspects of what that entails. So I really think our conversation will help anyone who is in the midst of grief or anyone who is curious about what the grief journey looks like. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Tracy. Hi, Tracy. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. I'm so looking forward to learning more about you and your practice and all of the work that you're doing. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah. Thanks. I think it'll be very insightful. I always feel so honored when I get to interview people who are really like professionals because Mm -hmm. I learn so much, you know, I have my lived experience and then I have just my experience of like talking with people, but I feel like there's so much that can be learned in this topic of mental health and grief. And I know that this will be a very insightful conversation. Yeah, thank you. I'm super excited. Um, I would love to just start by hearing your story um, and learning more about how you got into this specific aspect of therapy. Yeah. So I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I also have an extra certification in perinatal mental health. And I really got into that specialty through my own lived experience. So prior to that, I was a therapist. I was working at a hospital. I had a private practice and I was working with different populations, um, was pregnant at the time for the first time. And then when I was in my third trimester at just a little over eight months, I ended up having a stillbirth and I had to go through full labor and delivery. I had a really traumatic delivery, almost didn't survive. And through that process, I realized just what service gaps there were for parents who are going through pregnancy and infant loss and trauma and grief. And I knew pretty immediately that when and if I returned to work, I wanted to support other people who were going through what I went through to be able to provide the support that I wish I had early on. 
that's really amazing that you were able to in that moment like not only see that there was a gap that could be filled and that you could fill it um but to be also dealing with like everything else that had happened um what can I ask like what yeah did happen in your stillbirth what did that look like yeah so um I had a daughter her name is Addison and I I had um what is now in my chart is an unremarkable pregnancy which makes me laugh every time because there were complications (laughs) along the way and I um, had tried to get pregnant for almost a year. I found out that I was pregnant when I was hospitalized post-emergency kidney surgery for multiple infections. They ran blood work and they're like, you're pregnant. Um, I had taken like five pregnancy tests leading up to that to make sure it was safe to have the surgery. So it was really kind of like from the second I found out just a bit of a roller coaster. And I don't know why, but I had a bad feeling from that second. I said to my husband, Mm -hmm. the second I learned I was pregnant, something's wrong with our baby. And I was pretty much labeled as just like a first time anxious pregnant lady. Um, People would, you know, like run extra tests and there wasn't really anything medically wrong that they could point to. And I would go in there and say, something's wrong, something's wrong, which is not uncommon with pregnancy loss. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of women who have that bad feeling and then unfortunately it comes true. And so I was pretty much on edge my entire pregnancy. And then um, when I went for an ultrasound um, at 28 weeks, they said, oh, we see something on the brain. And so I was like, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, like that's it. That's my bad feeling. And so at that point I was referred to a perinatologist, which is a high-risk pregnancy doctor, so a specialist. And they were like, there's nothing wrong with the brain. That's human error. It was an ultrasound, um, like reflection from the machine, it happens. And I literally sat in that appointment. I said, I don't believe you do the test again. Something is wrong. And again, you're pregnant for the first time, you're anxious, there's nothing wrong, I promise you. And so the doctor said, you know, if you really want to test just because you're anxious, I'll I'll do a follow up test in four weeks. And so that was really the best that I could get because I didn't really feel like people were listening. And so I said, okay. And uh, pretty much like my husband and my friends and my family were like, everything's fine. Like the doctor said, it's fine. And um, I like felt sick to my stomach every day for those four weeks. And in that time I had a bridal shower. I, you know, I was, you know, eight months pregnant. So I prepared a nursery. I I was really planning and trying to just push down that feeling. And then four weeks later at 32 weeks, I went back and I went to the same office and they ran the test again and they're like, something's wrong and it's severe. And so basically that just led to uh, running from specialist to specialist, multiple tests and MRIs. And basically like what they had told me is like, we've never seen this. This is the stuff of textbooks. Like this is so rare. And when we did find a specialist, yeah. And when we did find a specialist who knew what it was, they basically said that our baby had had a stroke and and that she was essentially brain dead and the pregnancy wasn't viable. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 
it's pretty much the worst thing that could have ever happened to yeah. me. <laughs> and like, even though I had a bad feeling, I never imagined that my baby wouldn't come home. Like, I didn't know what that bad feeling was, but I never could have imagined that I would make it that far into the pregnancy because even though logically I, I knew stillbirth existed, I just didn't think it could happen to me. And I remember, you know, going to the doctor at like the 12 or like 13 week mark saying like, oh, I'm out of the first trimester. I'm safe. And being yeah. told, yeah, like, you know, yeah, really rare that it could happen. And so, yeah, that was really the, the start of um, really rare, awful things happening with my fertility. And it was just sort of one thing after the next, like on top of the grief, which for me has always been the worst and hardest part of, you know, having to bury a child and not having my baby here. Yeah. How long ago was it that Addison was born? So I delivered her on March 6th of 2020. Okay. So this was like the height of the pandemic. So yeah. I was induced thereafter and um, I delivered her stillbirth. And then immediately after I hemorrhaged after the deliveries so that led to two emergency surgeries and a week in the hospital. And so I discharged from the hospital and it was like the next day it was like the stay at home order. And it was like full blown, like we're not going anywhere masks. So it was like the, the true, like height of the pandemic. And I had almost died myself. I had just had my child die. So it was really, um, quite a time to have to go through such a crisis like that. Yeah. So I delivered at, uh, on July 1st. So it was right when it was last summer, right. When like the pandemic was still obviously a thing. But um, people were out and about a little bit more and things were like kind of starting to change. Yeah. And so for me, I kind of had like a choice of if I wanted to cocoon myself or if I yeah. wanted to go out. Yeah. Whereas for you, you had no choice, obviously. Yeah. Like you were just thrown into being yeah. at home. Yeah. Do you think that that was helpful or, or do you think it could have compounded any of your trauma or how, what it was that experience like for you? Yeah, I think it is a combination of both. I think, you know, the experience of grief is such an isolating one because our society is so Mm anti-grief and we don't talk about death and we definitely don't talk about baby death. And so when that happens, people who are grieving feel really isolated. There's a lot of shame they feel like something's wrong with them. You know, they're told to get over it, to look for silver linings. And so um, being cut off from supports, like not being able to like physically like be near like family was really hard. Yeah. The flip side of that was like, I didn't want to talk or see anyone. So I was like, like people have messaged me like, oh my gosh, if we were in a pandemic, I'd be like dropping food off. I'm like, I don't want anyone coming here, like my house dropping anything off. So it's kind of both, I guess, is the answer to your question of like, I think people like we're so consumed that by the pandemic that I felt forgotten a lot of the time. Mm. And then also like, I didn't want to talk to anyone. I actively ignored people for months and months and months. And so, you know, kind of a balance of both. Yeah. Yeah. I could totally see that. Um, when you say, um, our culture is sort of anti-grief. Yeah. I absolutely agree. I would love to hear more of what how you've seen that in your experience and yeah. also in your work. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing that I've seen is people um, want you to look to the bright side, right? Like mm-hmm. 
anytime, and this is true outside of you too. Like when someone has an experience, if they, if they, if there's been a trauma or if they feel sad or anxious, we're such a culture of like, you know, good vibes only, like, what can you do to feel better? And what's true of grief is that there isn't a cure for grief. It's not a mental health disorder. It's a life condition and we can't escape grief. It's usually the people who say those things who haven't experienced grief and they're the lucky ones, right? Like we all want to be the one who doesn't like really know grief. Um, but this sort of like need to band-aid or cheer people up or make them look to the future is actually quite harmful because it doesn't make them feel better. It makes them feel worse. And what that teaches them is, oh, you're just not a, a person that I can go to for support. Mm -hmm. really what people want to hear when they're grieving is like, this is so awful. Like I'm here. If you want to talk about it, I wish this didn't happen. There's nothing that I can say to make you feel better. Do you want me to come over? Do you want me to cry with you? Do you want a hug? So it's really about aiding the suffering versus reducing pain. And it's about moments where you feel supported and moments where you feel less sad or less anxious, not about erasing it, because the only thing that would make a grieving person feel better is to have their person not be dead. And that's mm -hmm. the one thing that we can't give them. And so this expectation that they need to get over it or that they need to look for silver linings doesn't really fit. And rather we need to say like, yeah, you're going to probably miss this person forever. That's okay. How could you not, you know, big grief comes from big love and you love so deeply. And that's really what grief is. We grieve because we love. And that is sort of like the message that I, I try to share because like, especially in therapy, it's sort of like a fix it culture of like, oh, I'm going for grief, like make me feel better. And mm -hmm. I, it's probably like one of the biggest questions I get is like, well, when will I be over this? And I say, well, you won't get over it. Your relationship to it will change and you will laugh again and it won't always feel as raw, but you're not going to get over it. And that's okay. How can we honor your person who has died? Mm, I love that. I think that's such an important thing for people to hear of, you know, you're not going to get over it and that's okay. Yeah. You know, it's not something that, I don't know, it almost feels like that's our measure of success right. with grief is like, yeah. I, once I'm over this, once I'm better, once I'm back to normal, it's like, you can't be, you can never go back to the person you were before. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. That doesn't mean yeah. that you failed. It just is your life is taking a different path. Yeah. Yeah. I really love that. Yeah. It just sort of is what it is. And that's the thing that people need to remember too, is that, you know, when there's a huge loss like that, you know, you are a different person and the expectation that you return to who you were doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, everything about you is different. And for me personally, everything Everything about my life changed. I changed my whole career. Mm. I, every relationship I've had moving forward has changed. All of my past relationships have changed. So, you know, we need to embrace that change. It's not about, you know, going back to what was because the circumstances will never again be the same. And, you know, that's okay. Yeah. I am curious how did, so the things you're saying, do you feel like mm -hmm. you understood that before? losing Addison or do you feel like it was more informed by your own grief? I think the answer is both. Yeah. Um, I think I like as a therapist have a lot of training, like I'm trained to sit with people in their discomfort. Like I, I don't feel uncomfortable when people cry. I actually want you to cry in therapy because that's normal and healthy. And I, I want to bring that to the surface. I don't want you to avoid. So 
there is um, a knowledge base and a training that I had prior. And there is no training like that of living through it. And what I know now doesn't compare to what I knew then. And I think that has really helped me in my work to be able to like when a parent comes to me and they've just had a miscarriage or a stillbirth or, or they've had to terminate for medical reasons to be able to like know what they're thinking and feeling and to, and to align with them and, and to normalize that and to say like, yes, like, of course you feel that way. And to really know it is very different than reading it in a textbook or taking a training. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that makes you so special as a therapist, because Thank to be you. able to talk to someone who's actually been through it makes it just, yeah, there's just the familiarity and there's just so much understanding and that's really, really special. Yeah. And, you know, we don't like as therapists get any training in perinatal reproductive mental health. Uh, it's very rare that we get that training. I, I don't know anyone personally who has. Um, so like even myself, like prior to this, like I did not have an understanding of even just like healthy pregnancy and delivery and postpartum, which there's a lot there. That's really hard when everything goes right when there's a living baby at the end. And so the fact that therapists don't have the training and don't realize how nuanced working with this population is, it is really a huge problem because there are therapists who are meeting with people who have had losses like this and they're being dismissive. They're not saying the right things and it's causing harm. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've had that experience where I've met with someone and like, they just didn't get it. And even if you have a therapist who specializes in perinatal and reproductive mental health, it, it's a quite broad specialty. Mm -hmm. So know, loss is a subspecialty. And initially, like I met with someone who um, had more experience with like pregnancy postpartum and like, they didn't get the loss stuff. Like when I was saying like, I'm scared to be pregnant again, I don't ever want to have a baby shower. Like I, I, there's no joy for me. I was told, well, you need to be excited. I want you to be excited. Mm -hmm. And that, that wasn't reflective of my trauma. And so like, what I say to people is like, of course you feel anxious. I'd be surprised if you didn't you don't have to feel hopeful. Like, that's okay. You can feel really scared. Here's what we're going to do so that you have moments where you feel supported and scared at the same time. So it's not just that you're feeling scared. And so that I think is like the piece that is missing sometimes when there isn't that like um, experience and training. Yeah, that definitely rings. I'm currently pregnant after yeah. Yeah, loss. And yeah, I've... <laughs> That rings true for me. I was very, yeah. very fortunate to find a, gr a grief therapy, uh, grief therapist who was supportive, but like, yeah, that's not the case for everyone. And yeah, those messages of, no, you need to just be hopeful. You need to be excited. You need to enjoy this time. You know, yeah. it's not helpful for someone who has been through so much trauma and yeah. Yeah. And then obviously has that. So yeah, that, that validating voice I think is so helpful yeah. and yeah, I'm thankful that you are doing that. <laughs> yeah. How did your career change? Yeah. Um, before and after, like after losing action. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest one is I never worked with this population prior. Like I worked mm -hmm. with parents and families and, you know, sometimes someone would be pregnant, but I never worked with someone who had, um, like birth trauma or like was in the postpartum period or had loss. Um, and so that's now one of my biggest specialties. And I've also done a lot of writing and I've had articles published. And so I think, 
I really become like a, a sort of expert, like in this area. And before I was working more, I was working a lot with children, which I still do. Um, I still work with every population I was prior to. It's just now more focused on this. Um, but it was more sort of like um, anxiety, depression, trauma, kind of like general life stuff, grief, life transitions, career stuff, school stuff, um, like family conflict, relational conflict. So I do that and I'm like now like very focused on this. So I guess those would be the differences. Yeah. So when you talk about doing perinatal work, my first yeah. thought goes to loss. Um, yeah. And I didn't even think about all of the other things that can come with yeah. caring for someone. What what do some of those things look like? Like first trauma and yeah. Yeah. What yeah. are some other things that someone would see you for? Yeah. So birth trauma is a really big one. Um, one of the biggest things I see is just like the fact that no one educates the person who is pregnant about what to expect is like you, you experience it in the moment and then you learn about it either in that instance or after it's like, no one says, here's what to expect. Like when you're pregnant, here's how your body will change. Here's what to expect during delivery. Here's what to expect during the postpartum period. So a lot of this sort of, um, normal, like normal, you know, <laughs> things of like pregnancy, delivery, postpartum birth trauma is a big one, high risk pregnancies, um, of course, loss and all the different types of loss. Infertility is a really mm -hmm. big one. Um, yeah, I would say those are sort of like the biggest things. And then like with that, there's like shifts to identity, like, oh my gosh, like I'm going to be a parent and like, I might have to take time off of work or, you know, what kind of parent do I want to be? And it can bring up for people a lot of stuff of how they were parented and what they learn they want to do and don't want to do like moving forward for their kid. So it's really, um, quite an exploration of like the person and everything that they've been through and their past and their present and their future. That is really cool. Do yeah. you feel like there's things that could change within the way we do on the medicine side? Oh yeah. Way, yeah. <laughs> because I, I mean, I felt very similarly to you. Yeah. Stillbirth never crossed my mind as something that would ever happen to me. And, yeah. um, I personally feel like if that's talked about, if it's an option, if it's, you know, it doesn't have to be frightening, but I think if it's yeah. complicated more, I think people will be a lot more prepared. What are some of the ways yeah. that you think we could do better on the medicine side? Yeah. I mean, so many, <laughs> um, I think there needs to be a balance of educating, um, and not scaring, but educating. Um, and um, trauma-informed care is one of the biggest ones that comes to mind for me. So, um, you know, like educating, but letting people know like, okay, you know, here's what's normal, here's what's not here, resources here, are questions you have, because there, there's no sort of conversation about that. I think that this stuff should start prior to um, when someone's pregnant, if it's something that is going to be planned. Of course, mm -hmm. there are unplanned pregnancies, but for a lot of people, they know that they actively, they go in, they get off birth control, they're having conversations and the conversations and the education should really start then. Um, of like, hey, you know, here's how long it typically takes someone to get pregnant. Because I remember thinking like, what's wrong with me? And then mm -hmm. my doctor said, well, so it usually takes about a year. You know, I didn't know that. So even just the sort of like basic statistics, um, 
the changes that happen, um, the way that doctors relay information, especially surrounding like trauma and loss. So like doctors um, sometimes can be pretty abrasive. Like if it's a, a miscarriage and if it's an early miscarriage, they tend to say things like, oh, well, it was just a chemical pregnancy or mm. you can try again. And things like that are quite hurtful. So in the language that they use, um, not putting people who are dealing with infertility and or have had loss in a, an exam room full of baby photos, that's really triggering. Um, calling to check in, so like if someone has had a loss, having your provider check in, having someone who's really compassionate and empathic, who's saying like, this is so awful, I'm so sad for you, you know, saying all of those things that are really comforting. Um, I had a lot of people congratulate me and tell me to enjoy time with my baby. They didn't even know what had happened or they forgot. And so making sure that, you know, when something happens, there's um, communication amongst the medical staff. Like, you know who you're talking to. You're not exposing this person who's going through so much to 10 different people that maybe there's a smaller team of one or two people that reach out to that patient. So um, those are the things that come to mind, like off the top of my head. But really, I think what it comes down to is the fact that doctors are products of a flawed system. Mm. And in this, and in the same way that um, therapists are not trained in perinatal reproductive mental health, if we're not trained in it and we're mental health professionals, you can bet doctors aren't trained in it. And so I do have a bit of a sort of soft spot for them because I do think, and in my experience, they want to do a good job. They just don't know how. And anytime I would give feedback, they'd be like, thank you so much. Like, I didn't even realize that, of course. Um, and so like some examples were um, like when I I don't know what your experience was like, but I delivered in a hospital. And when I walked mm -hmm. in, I was placed in a room full of happy pregnant women who are about to deliver. Yeah. And I just remember thinking like, get me out of this freaking room. Like I can't sit here. So, you know, there should be a private waiting room. Another example um, was I signed intake paperwork and it said, congratulations, you're about to experience life's greatest joy. It's like, there should be a separate packet for stillbirth parents so yeah. things like that that just sort of fall through the cracks because the whole system you know is really set up to barely support parents with living children so if it's set up to barely support parents with living children then lost parents and parents who have experienced trauma are really falling through the cracks and um, there's a lot to be done there and so those are things I gave feedback about my experience that's fantastic yeah I I feel obviously similarly and for me not knowing really what like the systems are and not having like that inside view yeah. it's like it seems like such a big problem you know and it's yeah like such a huge thing um but to know that there are people like you who are able to give feedback and, and all of us yeah. as lost parents are but yeah it's it's definitely not easy what yeah what would you say to um the culture of the anxious pregnant lady, especially the hmm. first time moms. Um. Yes. <laughs> I would say that of course you feel that way. It's completely normal. And your body is going through so many physiological changes and emotional changes, not to mention you're imagining what your life will be like. And it's a huge, huge change. And so I think that you know, it's far better when someone says like, oh, like I'm scared or I'm nervous to, to listen and say, what are you nervous about? And to figure out what we can do to support them versus um, saying like, oh, they're just being anxious or they're just complaining mm -hmm. because I would like far rather someone, 
you know, say something's wrong and have a doctor be annoyed, but everything actually turned out to be fine, then someone say that and have a doctor miss something. Um, because the damage that happens when someone feels like they tried so hard to advocate and they were constantly turned away is pretty, pretty big. And it breaks a lot of the trust between the provider and the patient. And it's hard to come back from that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's tough because when I was pregnant with my first, I felt like I just needed to trust whatever the doctor, midwife, yeah, nurse practitioner said. Yeah. And um, yeah, it definitely, I mean, I, I don't think that that had any impact on the outcome of my, of our son dying, but yeah, it definitely um, is tough to feel the need to advocate for yourself. Yeah. And then to also feel like you're getting this pushback of, no, you're just right. the, you're just the anxious pregnant woman, you know? Right. Yes. And it's a power differential, right? Anytime you have a provider, there's power differential. They're in charge. They're the expert. And so that's really hard because we shouldn't really have to say it so many times. It should be said one time and someone should say, okay. And like, I will say like my doctor was good with that. Like anytime I felt nervous, you know, cause you know, throughout pregnancy, you really don't get many ultrasounds, but I had an ultrasound pretty much every appointment because I felt nervous. Mm-hmm. There wasn't anything that he could see in those appointments. So that was good. It was with like, um, I think like the perinatologist that I felt that way. And I did have that feeling, but you know, I don't know that there were any extra tests that they could have seen it earlier because with brain abnormalities, they're not really detectable until like second, third trimester. Mm. Um, but I think just in someone saying like, Hey, like if you want to have like eyes for reassurance, like I'll do an extra test. Like it's 10 minutes. Like, what do you care? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I know there's like the insurance side and stuff, but like as someone who has worked in the medical system too, I used to work at a hospital. Like I know that we can ethically in good faith, say that something is needed for insurance purposes too. So yeah. Um, What are some ways that you think we could do a better job just as individuals to normalize grief and to create a more grief conscious um, culture? Yeah. Um, I think, um, understanding that when you're supporting someone who is grieving, it's about them, not you. So letting go of expectations that they need to respond at all, or in a certain way, like I would get that a lot of people to be like, well, I reached out and you didn't answer. And I was like, um, like, are you doing this for me or for you? Right. Like, um, so just the sort of like expectations, really educating people on, um, like what's normal and what's helpful, having more open dialogue about like how to approach it. Cause I would get messages. Even now I get messages of like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I ignored you for a year and a half. And I always tell people like, thank you so much. I don't say, oh, it's okay. I say, thank you. My feelings were hurt. I get why that was hard. Thank you so much for talking about it. Here's what I need to feel supported. So more conversation about like what people can do, because I think the flip side of that is we're such a culture of don't do this, don't do that, that people get really scared and people have to know what to do as much as they need to know what not to do. So more conversations around that for sure. Um, More stories being published, being shown accurately, like in the media is helpful instead of these sort of like rose tinted lens uh, stories of like, oh, you go through something bad. And then someone says, oh, it's all worth it because of this. And like, Mm. you know, 
I always tell people, cause I get that a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, like you're amazing. This is your purpose. And I was like, no, this is an and situation. Like my daughter died and I love to be able to surprise, provide support. It's and not, but, and so that's the thing with post-traumatic growth. It doesn't negate the trauma. They coexist. And so, um, helping people to not sort of have that mentality of like the platitudes and the silver linings and, you know, everything happens for a reason. Um, those things are hard for people to reconcile because it's far more uncomfortable when things don't fit neatly into a box, when we can't look to something and say, that's the reason why. Mm. And sometimes we just don't know. And that's uncomfortable for people. Yeah. Can you explain more about what post-traumatic growth is and what that looks yeah. like? Yeah. Yeah. So post-traumatic growth is um, this idea that through horrific traumas, um, positive changes or growth or meaning um, results. So someone would say to me like, oh, now you are helping other parents. Like now you have this specialty, you've written articles, like that's so great. And it's like, yeah, that is great. And it doesn't take away from what happened. If, if someone were to say to me, would you rather have what you have with your career or your daughter? Like, I don't even have to think about that. I make this the swap like in a second. And so um, it's, I guess, the sort of uh, positive things or progress or meaning that come from, stem from a horrific event. So it's like, I wouldn't likely be specializing in this had my daughter not died. That's probably true. Yeah. When I first heard of the concept of post-traumatic growth, it was very reassuring to me because I actually felt a lot of guilt um, about the good, the quote unquote, good things mm -hmm. that came out of, um, losing our son. And someone explained that concept to me and it gave me so much freedom because yeah. I felt like, okay, I can acknowledge this growth and mourn my mm -hmm. son. And it didn't yeah. have to be this either, or, and it was just as soon as I understood, like once the concept was kind of brought up to me, it, it brought me yeah. so much. Um, yeah. It just relieved so much guilt. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because we don't live in a world of absolutes. We don't live in a world where it's this way or that way. And um, sometimes people think that we do and it's just not true. And grief um, very commonly occurs in the same instance as joy and love mm -hmm. and happiness. Like I'll have moments where I'm laughing and the next second I'm crying because I remember and I think about it. Yeah. And so we need to talk more about that. It's not just like you arrive and you graduate from grief. It's, it's like, it happens in the same second sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk more about the work that you've published and where people can find that? Yeah, so I think I've had, I want to say like five articles published. Um, they're all on my website, so I don't, we could link that. Um, and then I have another one that that's coming out hopefully this year or next year, but um, I don't know the details for that one yet. And then I'm working on a memoir about my experience in the mental health system and the uh, medical system. So working on getting that going too. Um, but lots of articles that I've written on my website. So I, I wrote like in detail about my actual delivery. I've written about, I'm in, I'm now dealing with infertility stemming from my stillbirth mm -hmm. and the surgeries that I had. So I write about that. I, I did a whole thing on what it was like grieving during a pandemic and having to, you know, attend my daughter's funeral via FaceTime. So a lot within this realm that I've written about. Wow. 
Can you talk more about your grief journey and what that looked like for you? What were some of the things that were helpful? Some of the things that were hurtful? Yeah. The biggest thing is I was out of work for a long time. I, I just remember thinking like, I don't know that I, if I can go back to being a therapist, like how can I go and support someone when, when I think that this is the worst thing that could ever happen to someone like that's not a good therapist if I'm sitting there thinking like what you're going through doesn't matter right so I knew that (laughs) I needed time and so I took eight months off of work and um, granted I had a lot of of course trauma but I had a really rough physical recovery it was a lot of Mm -hmm. continued medical intervention and um, hospital in and out and tests and stuff and so um I, I, I knew I needed that time and I was in therapy, always couples and individual therapy. Um, writing was really like my thing. So I didn't want to talk or see anyone. I think for the first several months, I only saw my parents and my brother. I live with my husband, so I saw him, <laughs> but I would just sit writing and reading and um, that was it. And then kind of slowly... I would um, reach out to people and, you know, closer to the loss, people are more supportive and then um, the support tends to drop off. But for me, it was the people who would continue to reach out with all those expectations like we were talking about earlier. And I would sort of test it out. And if someone was saying things that weren't helpful, I would either, you know, not reach out to them or give feedback if I was in the place and just kind of slowly emerge. But even now, like I haven't seen many people. And it's so funny because I speak so publicly, like on my Instagram and stuff. And so I think people have this idea of like, oh, like you're just like doing this all the time, but it's really not true. Like I'm seeing people for the first time since everything happened and I'm still saying no to things and there's still people I haven't talked to. And so, um, really just like going at my own pace. Um, As I got back to work, I went back very slowly. I make my own schedule, which is a benefit of working for myself. Um, I get to choose who I meet with at work. Um, So a lot of flexibility and a lot of um, time for me and making sure that my needs are met and I continue with my therapy. And um, that, yeah, I guess that's been what's been most helpful. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so interesting because I feel like everyone has... I mean, every person is different. And so the way they handle grief is going to be so different and there's no right or wrong. It's just like, you do what you can do. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell people like, we don't get a pass or fail in grief Mm. and what what works for someone isn't going to work for you. That's okay. You do what works for you as long as it's not harmful to you. Like you're going to feel depressed. You're going to feel anxious. You're going to scream. You're going to cry. You might throw things, right? You know, we want to make sure that we're keeping you safe. Like if there are safety concerns, we want to make sure you get help. But there's a difference between normative grief and concern for someone's safety. And the thing that I think our society gets wrong is any sort of like perceived negative emotion, like sadness or anger is perceived as something's wrong. It's like, actually, that's quite normal with grief. Of course, you're angry. No parent should outlive their child. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. What are some ways that you um, remember Addison? Yeah. Well, I have her name on a necklace, which I'm wearing. (laughs) Yeah. So I have, my husband got me this on her one year, um, like birthday. Um, 
I write about her a lot. I talk about her a lot. Um, we were we want to get tattoos with her name. So it's not something that we've done yet, but we're planning on doing that. Um, she's buried in a cemetery. So we visit her cemetery a lot. Um, anytime we visit, we bring um, a bouquet and we get the same bouquet to match in our home. So it's kind of like a way of staying connected to her. Um, yeah, I also have a ring with her name like inscribed on the inside. So lot, lots of ways that we. Um, Keep her memory alive. I think that's so beautiful. I think even in that there are some misconceptions. Yeah. Uh, I think that from the outside there can be this idea that if someone is doing these memorial things that they're um, almost stuck and that's so mm -hmm. far from the truth. Have you experienced any of that? Yeah, I mean, I not mean for you personally, but yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I think people are like, why are you still crying? That like people will come in therapy and I'm like, oh, so and so said I shouldn't be crying about this. And it's like, you can cry even if it's 30 <laughs> years, but it, it's like been like two months. I'm like, oh. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's no timeline for any of that stuff. So yeah, there is just a sort of expectation to like move on. I think a really common one with child loss is, oh, we'll you'll have another baby. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, not everyone can. Yeah. Um, and even if they can, there's no such thing as a replacement baby. So um, yeah, I definitely think there is this sort of expiration of like, okay, you had your time, like let's move on from this. And um, it's not really something we move on, just sort of becomes part of our lives. Absolutely. Yep, I absolutely agree. Um, can you tell us more about TGN therapy? Um, the yeah. services you provide, your website, blog, yeah. all of the things. Yeah, so we're in um, San Diego, California. So um, we're providing virtual appointments to anyone in California, but that's where all of us are licensed. So nowhere outside, unfortunately. Um, and um, there's uh, four therapists total. So myself and then um, three other therapists. And so everyone kind of has their own specialty. Um, there's another therapist who um, specializes in perinatal mental health as well. Um, but everyone kind of has their own sort of populations that they work with, which is really cool because we can kind of like refer back and forth to each other. Um, what else? I have a lot of resources on my website, which is just tgntherapy.com. So lots of articles, linked Instagram accounts to follow, um, support, uh, support groups, um, different um, like businesses that support like perinatal mental health. So lots of resources on there, but we do like individual couples and family therapy in, in California. Awesome. One thing I saw on your website that I was really interested in was the training. Um, I think, yeah, you said that you could have like offered training for people to come into people's like work or school. Um, oh yeah. That, yeah. That, that was super yeah, interesting. I forgot about me. that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's probably been on hold a little bit now because we can't go anywhere. Yeah. Or anything, but. yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've been asked to do a few trainings. So like I've done perinatal ones, like, and I've done them for like other providers, other therapists. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I've also just done general mental health trainings. Like recently I did a training, um, for this company, they're just doing like a sort of, um, like a health challenge month and mm -hmm. they had different healthcare providers, like they had a nutritionist and, you know, I think they had a 
doctor and a therapist. And um, I was the therapist and I came and I spoke about um, like mental health and burnout and mental health in the workplace. And uh, it was just over Zoom and uh, kind of like how to address mental health, how to like have productive conversations with the team. And yeah, so yeah, I do those trainings too. I forgot about those. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I think that's really cool. I like stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. The more, the more informed we all are, the better yeah. our society will be. <laughs> yeah. And I think too, like there's a really common misconception just about mental health in general of like, oh, if you're not having a breakdown, then you're fine. And it's like, we all have mental health. So that means we all have mental health needs. And just because someone is like, quote unquote, fine, or if someone's high functioning, doesn't mean that they're not suffering and doesn't mean that there aren't things that they can do to feel better. Yeah. I think that's amazing. I would also love to hear more about your Instagram page. I yeah. know you're very active on it. Yeah. It's been helpful for me. Oh, um, yeah, I would love to hear like how you became so active and, and what yeah. that was like for you. Yeah. It's so funny about the Instagram because uh, like we were joking when we first got on this call, like I'm really tech challenged and for so long was like, I'm not doing that. And um therapy is kind of a weird field where we're supposed to have like really strict boundaries. Like we can't have like relationships with people that we treat outside of the therapeutic relationship. Whereas other providers, like I have a lot of friends who are doctors who are friends with their patients. It's not an ethical thing for therapists. It is. So all my social media accounts are private. And then I was like, you know, like, I want to get this sort of like a message out there. So I'll create one. And I just started like publishing like my articles on there. And I started um, just like writing like little like one liner quotes and then they would just get shared and people would join. And then I just started doing like Q and A's of like different polls and like fill in the box of like, you know, what's one thing you wish like your doctor like did for you, like post-loss or what's one thing you wish someone would say to you um, to better support your grief. And so it just has kind of taken off and it has been really special because I just get like inundated with all these messages from people who are like are all, all over the world. And they've just said like, just like the nicest things of like, thank you for doing this. Like it's not talked about. And so there's something really reparative about that. And um, the community is so lovely because like the moments that I'll share, like, oh, I'm going through like IVF, like everyone's like so loving. So it's not just like me giving, it's like receiving too, which like as a therapist, I'm so used to being like the sole giver. And so it's really just become such a beautiful community and it, it feels really special to be able to do that. It's amazing. I love that. So everyone can find you at TGN, it's at TGN therapy, right? Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And then your yeah. website is TG. Same, tgntherapy.com. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And then is there anywhere else yeah. that anyone can find you? Any other things that you want to link? Um, I think that's pretty much it. Just my website and the Instagram. I have a Facebook page, but I rarely use it. I like, always forget to use it. But the Instagram, I'm pretty active on. It's just, it's too much to keep up with. I know. <laughs> I know. My, I, I'm going to abandon Facebook eventually. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, wonderful. Okay. To, to finish up then is that yeah. what is one thing you would want to say to a listener who is in the midst of grief? Well, it's a good one. I think the most important message I would want them to know is that this is so awful. It is as bad as you think. There's nothing that you can do to make it not be awful. It's okay to feel whatever it is you're feeling. There will come a time where it doesn't feel 100% this way, not because you love your person less, 
but because that's grief and it's not sustainable. And as time goes on, you will continue to love and miss and honor your person. And that's just sort of how grief is. That's amazing. That's like <laughs> the most perfect validating statement I think I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's yeah. wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Tracy. This has been such yeah. a pleasure. I feel like you have such a wealth of knowledge on this topic. And thank you. Yeah, it's it's just so nice to talk to someone who has the lived experience and then the professional yeah. experience as well. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. And thank you all so much for listening. As always, you can follow along on our Instagram, which is at Morning Dove Pod. You can follow me um, at Allie Rose Felker. And then if you have a story or an insight that you would like to share, please shoot me an email. That's AllieRoseFelker at gmail.com. And we look forward to another episode very soon. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tracy. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Well, thank you all so much for listening. I want to say a special thank you to all of my guests who have come on the podcast for season one. It has been such an honor to hear and share your stories, to get to know you a little bit more, and to provide a space where we can grieve openly with validation and empathy. Season two of the Morning Dove podcast will air in October, so stay tuned. I am very excited for the plans that I have for the future. Also, please join us on Instagram at Morning Dove Pod. I have lots of ideas for how we can create more of a community there, and I would love for you to join us. Thanks so much, everyone. I hope you have a beautiful day.